Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Uh, so Tracy, you may remember that when we did the Devil's Footprints in the intro, I said, hey, this sounds creepy, but it's really funny. Yep, so you did don't, say that. Don't be scared. This, this one is the opposite. kind of the opposite. <laughs> It's really gross and pretty horrifying. Uh, to some people, it may even sound a little bit romantic. In my opinion, it is not. We'll get into why. But it involves a man who loved a woman, and his love for her continued long after her death. But whether she loved him back is a matter of some dispute. And according to the subject of this episode, Carl Tanzler, she did. But according to her family, she did not. And we don't actually have to guess at Tanzler's thought during all of this. Uh, we have his account, which he published some years after all of these events happened uh, as a, a a paid writing gig for the pulp comic Fantastic Adventures in 1947. Heads up, this is very dark stuff. We are talking about things like decomposition and people handling corpses, and it might not be suitable for younger history buffs. Or just people that are a little bit um, queasy of tummy. Yeah, or in general. (laughs) (laughs) Or just humans who are horrified by horrifying things. Yeah, Tanzler, whose name sometimes appears with a K instead of a C in Karl, was born in Dresden, Germany on February 8th, 1877. And he claimed that he grew up in a country castle that was haunted by a figure known as the White Woman, who he also called Countess Anna Cosell. He believed this ghost was an ancestor who died in the 18th century. The Countess, per Carl's account, had been a beauty and was interested in alchemy. And at the age of 12, Carl, who had a hearty interest in science himself, had a dream about the Countess, the first of many visions of her that he had throughout his life. As he matured, Tanzler remained obsessed only with science and invention. He wasn't a smoker or a drinker, and he also wasn't particularly interested in romance. That comes up over and over where, in his defense of his character, he always comments that he neither smoked nor drank. Um, But that focus on science enabled him, again, according to his own account, to earn master's degrees in medicine, philosophy, mathematics, physics, and chemistry, he claimed by the time he was 24. Carl believed that the ghost of the Countess visited him, sometimes making a ruckus, breaking scientific instruments, and eventually, he said, he she showed him the woman he was destined to be with. This was a beautiful young woman with long, dark hair. He would use this vision as sort of a guiding element of his life. Uh, after he finished his schooling, Carl traveled a great deal. And Tanzler even admits in his own writings that his account of his travels as a young man are lacking in details, writing, quote, I can refer to these years only in the sketchiest manner in this magazine account, because all which matters is what leads up to my final meeting with the apparition of the castle. At one point, he traveled to Genoa. He encountered a marble statue that looked like this promised beloved that his ancestor had shown him. The statue sat atop a grave of a woman named Elena, who had died at the age of 22. Tanzler was so moved by the appearance of the statue that he began to weep, 
and he kept saying the name Elena over and over. He wrote that he next saw a spirit seem to emerge from the statue and walk past him as it made direct eye contact with him. He pursued this spirit into the streets of Genoa, but he lost her in a crowd. After this incident, Tanzler kept traveling, and his journeys eventually ended in Sydney, Australia, where he settled down for a while. He got a job as an electrical engineer and an x-ray expert. He also built uh, rebuilt a torpedo boat that he used to go fishing and to explore. In May of 1910, still living in Sydney, Tanzler was visited by what he believed was a ghost, a spirit that entered his home, blew out his lamps, and then left. The ghost stayed away until March 7th of 1912 at 7 p.m., and then as he was eating dinner, it appeared to him, fully visible, the same beautiful young woman that his ancestor had promised would be his bride. He approached the apparition, they embraced one another, and his writing about this moment describes a divine bliss before the spirit melted away. But the spirit was gone but a moment before regaining its form in another room of the bachelor's home. She remained for a week, following him around the house, smiling as she observed him. She was silent, and he didn't know her name, so he began calling her Aisha. He would later write, quote, There was an incorporeal love between us which approached the divine. When the spirit left, Tanzler reported feeling very depressed, although he was also confident that they would meet again, and that she was his promised bride that the spirit of Countess Anna had told him about. But his anguish over it all manifested in physical illness, and he wound up being admitted to the hospital. As he began to recover, he discovered that his father had fallen into a coma and then died a week later. And that week coincided, according to Tanzler's writings, exactly with his spirit visitor's time with him, right to the hour. Tanzler had actually become a British subject while living in Australia, and he spent World War I in an internment camp due to his German heritage. Tanzler wrote a lengthy account of his time in the camp for Rosicrucian Digest in 1939. In this tale, he claimed to have built an organ from debris with the assistance of fellow prisoners, who Tanzler said were all Buddhist priests while imprisoned in the camp. This sounds kind of far-fetched to me as much of his writing does. Uh, after the armistice, the organ traveled with Tanzler by boat back to Europe, and it was a harrowing journey during which the ship he was on passed through a number of storms. When he finally arrived back home, only his mother and one sister remained there. His other sister had gotten married and moved to the United States, and his father, of course, was deceased. Carl felt completely unmoored back in Germany, and he was unable to resume any sort of life that resembled his previous one before the war. And so Tanzler, who at this point was in his late 40s, left Europe. First, he traveled to Havana, Cuba, arriving in late February 1926. He stayed there for a few days, eyeing the carnival crowd to see if any of the women might reveal themselves to be his promised love. But on March 1st, he headed to Florida where his married sister was living. And while Tanzler did not exactly love Florida, he thought that Cuba was a far more beautiful place, he purchased land and began working on a home there. But he soon needed to seek out work to keep money coming in. At that point, he had been basically living off of family money. Uh, And he soon began working at the Marine Hospital at Key West as an x-ray specialist and pathologist. 
Coming up, we will talk about the moment that Tansler felt all of those visions had manifested in a faded meeting. But first, we are going to stop for a quick sponsor break. It was in his position at the Marine Hospital that Tansler was called to draw blood from a patient on April 22, 1930. And that patient was Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos. And when Carl Tanzler met her, he loved her instantly. He believed that she was the woman that his distant relative had shown him, finally in the flesh, their lives having followed the paths that would lead them to one another. There's also the sobering fact that this young woman, whose blood he had drawn, was listed as married on her records. Carl questioned briefly whether he was somehow cursed and had finally found his dream bride, only to immediately discover that she was, in fact, someone else's actual bride. In spite of this fact, though, he dis- he called his mood indescribably happy. Tansler identified the cause of Elena's illness soon after they met, tuberculosis. In the 1930s, tuberculosis was often still a death sentence. Carl knew that there were places abroad that could probably successfully treat Elena, and he even offered to send her for treatment elsewhere, but Elena and her family refused. Tansler had learned that Elena's husband had left her and was not in the picture anymore, so he dedicated his every energy and resource to trying to cure her himself. He treated her with radiation at the hospital, but also planned additional treatments. And then he rededicated himself to the restoration of an airplane that he'd been tinkering with. His intention was that he would cure Elena and they would fly away together to an island in the South Seas that he claimed to have discovered and thus owned. That is not how it works. There are, uh, as we said, a lot of far-fetched things in his accounts of his life. Uh This is also a really good time to mention, in addition to the fact that you may have noticed, we have not mentioned Elena falling in love with Carl Tanzler, but she was also much younger than Carl, who also, by the way, was calling himself Count von Kosel. She was only 20 when they met, and he at this point was 53 years old. Per Tanzler's account, Elena's treatment was hindered by her family. He was willing to do almost anything for her, and he characterized them in his writing as being distrustful of the medical knowledge and advice that he offered. Carl also had dreams about Elena, and at one point he wrote her a letter detailing one of them. In response, her sister visited Tanzler at work at the hospital and told him to dream no more. He felt that his dreams included premonitions of what was to come regarding Elena's health. Carl continued to write letters to Elena, writing in one, quote, So often you have said that I am too old for you, but listen, darling, I never count my years, neither do I count yours. If you were a mummy, 5,000 years old, I would marry you just the same. I swear it's not for selfish reasons that I want this marriage, but because I can do so much more than a boy your age. I can offer you my science, my experience, my capacity to save your life, And this, apart and on top of my undying love. You want to get well, don't you? And you want to see the world, don't you? You remember that time we did the episode about Thomas Day? Yeah. And his, and you were really angry the whole time. Yeah. That's how I feel about this episode. Oh, me too. Um, yeah, there's so much. He kept proposing to her. She kept saying no. And she would often say, no, you're too old for me. But he just kept going after her and, 
just relentlessly pursued her. All of his letters to her kind of treat her like a child and like she should just inherently trust him. And it's very weird and troubling. Um, but Elena did visit the hospital again, although because there was no privacy, she and Carl didn't speak much. Um, that same day, though, Tanzler received word that his mother had died, and he actually believed, similar to how he thought that a ghost had visited him when his father was in a coma, that a higher power had made Elena visit that day to offer him comfort. Elena's family moved. Neither they nor their neighbors would disclose their new address to Tanzler. He did not give up, though, and eventually a friend of the family who was worried about Elena's failing health pointed him to their house. Yeah, Elena was very, very sick in this time, and this woman, presumably out of a a good intention, thought, like, here's a medical professional and this girl needs help. Um, So she gave up their location. But he pushed his way into their home, and he more or less took over. Whether the family had distanced themselves from Tanzler because they were fearful of science, as his account indicates, or they were weirded out by this elderly man's obsessive behavior with Elena, we do not know for certain. Uh, we only have his side of the story. But they acquiesced to his presence at this point, likely because Elena was in a really, really bad state in terms of her health, and they were just desperate for any sort of help. He started electric current treatment with Elena. He let other members of the family experience it as well so they would know it wasn't harmful. He also gave Elena throat sprays to try to address her cough, including one that had gold dissolved into it, but she didn't like any of these. Yeah, he kind of was off doing his own sorts of uh, medication concoctions and treatments. Uh, Carl's diary tells a story that he claims was Elena asking him to take care of her body after her death, which she felt was imminent in the fall of 1931. He quoted her as saying, If I must die, all I can leave you is my body, for I am only a sickly girl, so I can't marry you while I am sick. But you will take care of my body after I am dead, won't you? According to Carl, he promised that he would, and in his mind, he considered this to be their marriage vow. He also wrote a note for Elena to keep in case of emergency, claiming that he was her husband and that she was of sound mind. And he did this after rumors began to circulate that her family was considering having her move to an asylum. So by the time Elena died on October 25th, 1931, Carl Tanzler considered himself to be her husband and he had established an adversarial relationship with her family. Even so, when Elena died, the family, which had a little money, let Tanzler handle all the funeral arrangements. Yeah, he basically swooped in and said he would pay for everything, and they, grieving, agreed to it. Carl describes in his writing feeling as though Elena's eyes were looking into him at the visitation before the funeral, even though her eyes were closed. While intellectually he knew she was dead, he wrote, quote, my heart with far greater force told me she is not dead. And he wrote this of the funeral's conclusion, quote, a strange kind of new life now began for me. It was something like a rebirth after these last two oppressing and depressing years. Now at last nobody could take my Elena away from me. Although I could not see her any longer, I felt her presence all the time. Carl then moved into Elena's room at her family's home. The Hoyos family had told Tanzler that they didn't want to live there anymore because of their grief. That house only held memories of their ailing Elena. 
And he said that if they moved, he was just going to rent the house himself or buy it outright. And they ended up staying, and so did he. He also decided that Elena's grave wasn't safe or watertight, so he built her a tomb to which he had the only key. And he disinterred her body to have it placed inside this tomb. Tanzler spares no details in discussing Elena's body as they found it when they disinterred it in his diary. He noted that she had been decaying and that the lining of her coffin had fallen down and stuck to her face and body, and he spent hours carefully removing it. He then cleaned and treated the body with preservative, and he sprayed it with eau de cologne. When Elena's body was placed into the tomb, Tanzler made sure it was under the best possible conditions to prevent further decay. He visited this tomb, which he compared to a small house, every evening. He claimed he felt a peace when he was there that he had nowhere else. After 18 months of visits, Elena, he said, began talking to him. She would ask if she was truly dead and told Carl she wanted to go live in his home. He promised that she could. And he brought her a gift every evening, things like handkerchiefs and pieces of jewelry. And he planned for the time that he would bring her home and dress her in a wedding gown and live with her as his bride. He believed that he could hear her singing to him when he visited. And he also felt that at times Elena was controlling his body, sending him signals to show him things to do, including how to get her out of the cemetery without being observed. Tanzler rented a house adjacent to the cemetery so that he could first move Elena's body into it and then move it via car from that spot. Under a new moon, he took the casket from the tomb and put it on a child's wagon, then covered it with a blanket and set out across the cemetery. Sometimes you'll read accounts of this that are kind of abbreviated, and they say he took the body in a wagon, and it kind of sounds like he folded up the body into the wagon, but no, he there was a coffin on top of it. Uh, and Tansler wrote of this walk, quote, All of the cemetery was alive with souls which came out of the graves from all sides, moving and thronging around us. It was indeed like a festival among the departed as they moved up on all sides. It was like a great divine wedding march for me taking place. He moved the body into the rented house near the cemetery, but it took some trouble. When Tansler put Elena's body in the tomb, he had placed it in a double casket with an interior chamber that was filled with a preservative fluid. There was a leak during the move, but Tansler managed to minimize how much liquid was lost, and then he moved Elena's body to his plane two days later. This is the same plane that we mentioned earlier that he was restoring with the intention of flying Elena wherever she wished. Yeah, it became their home for a while. Uh, Carl called Elena's cabin on the plane the ship's hospital, and he carefully unpacked her from her coffin. This segment of Tansler's recollections is a fascinating combination of scientific description and really twisted and weird romantic interlude. He writes of the mold and slime which were consuming her body and how carefully he had to remove those, trying as best he could to preserve her skin. And then within just a few paragraphs, he also talks about how beautiful she looked once he had draped her with a silk veil and how she was worried that he wouldn't love her anymore. And he, quote, sank gently into the coffin to her and kissed her as if she were alive. He took samples from the body and examined them in the hospital lab and was very happy that there were no dangerous bacteria in the mix. He felt that dying had, in a way, cured Elena of her tuberculosis. He washed her hair, cleaned maggots from the body, 
cleaned her skin, alluding in his writing to special ingredients that he used on her skin that he wished, quote, to keep secret. In a moment, we'll talk about just what Tansler's intentions were for Elena's body. But first, we're going to take a break because we could all use a little uh, sojourn away from all of the dead body talk. And we're going to hear from one of our sponsors. So Carl Tansler's intent was to resurrect Elena. He wrote over and over that all of his restoration efforts were aimed at perfecting her so that when she awoke, she would be her beautiful self. He was adamant that even after 18 months in the grave, she was in better shape than some of the living patients that he had treated. He fed the body, dispensing, quote, nourishing fluids to her orally. He claimed that Elena gained 20 pounds this way and that her various lacerations and wounds were healing. He wrote, quote, even the expression of her face changed to divine happiness. She did not require words to express herself. Her face was so much more eloquent than words could be. He also made plaster casts of the body to have a permanent record of Elena's beauty. And when he discovered that the silk that he had covered her face with had bonded to the skin, he left it in place and he painted over it with beeswax and balsam. Tansler was still working at the Marine Hospital during this time, and when the hospital administration had a leadership change, it meant that Carl's airplane was no longer welcome in its parking space on hospital grounds. So he moved it to the beach, taking the plane through town as though it was on a parade, enjoying his secret knowledge that Elena's body was in it in a flower-laden cabin. Yeah, he even talks in his writing about how they went by her family and they were all waving at him in the plane, not knowing that he had their relative inside, which is, mm -hmm, makes me growly. Uh, On his beach parcel of land that he had arranged, he built a structure that was to be his laboratory and home, as well as a hangar for the plane. This was all one big structure. And once they were moved in there, he continued his work, always with the goal that he was going to bring Elena back to life. He played music for her because, quote, it was a means to apply the cosmic laws of vibration through harmonic sound waves. He also applied electricity and was adamant that all of his work was part of an exact science. By soaking Elena in his liquid plasma, quote, incubator, Tanzler said he had reversed the embalming process. To prevent insect problems and desiccation, Tanzler treated the entire body as he had the face, with a layer of silk coated with wax and balsam. He also kept the body dressed and lying in bed, and remarked repeatedly on its beauty in his writing about this whole process. As Carl tended to Elena and his work to bring her back to life, years passed. He celebrated holidays with Elena's body, and then moved again just before the summer of 1936. Tansler claimed that not long after the move, Elena began to wake up and moved one of her fingers ever so slightly and turned slightly to gaze at him. But this was, in his account, a fleeting improvement. For the next several years, he continued trying to maintain the body, but he had started to realize that he was losing ground. Just the same, it was 1940. This was roughly seven years since Tansler had taken Elena's body from her tomb. And it was then that things began to unravel. While Carl Tanzler had been careful to take Elena's body out of the cemetery without anyone seeing him, 
And while he had moved his corpse bride to his airplane under a similar cloak of darkness, he was not very careful about otherwise not drawing attention to himself. For one thing, after he had visited Elena's tomb every single night for a year and a half, which everyone knew he did, he had abruptly stopped. He occasionally went back to check in on the the actual structure over the years, but it was a rarity. And people noticed this change in behavior. And for another, he continued to buy gifts for Elena and a 60-something bachelor buying dresses, perfume, jewelry, and flowers also raised some eyebrows. People started to wonder where all of those things were going. Elena's sister eventually confronted him. She wanted Tansler to open up the coffin in Elena's tomb. He refused to do so. She became angry. But then she said she just wanted to see her sister. And he said that he would let her do that. He revealed that Elena was in his home in her state of preservation. Tansler seems to have thought that Elena's family was going to be really pleased to see how well he had cared for her. But the initial reaction on her sister's part was disbelief. She didn't think this was really her sister's body. Uh, But then Elena's sister, who was named Florinda and went by Nana, asked Tansler to just please return the body to its casket. She kind of was coming out of this weird state of disbelief and just wanted her sister to be buried properly. But Tansler refused. Four days later, two sheriffs arrived at Tansler's home. They took Elena's body to a funeral home. Carl Tanzler was taken into custody, quote, accused of wantonly and maliciously demolishing, disfiguring, and destroying a grave. The story of Carl Tanzler von Kosel and his corpse bride got picked up by gossip circles and the press immediately. He basically became instantly famous, and there were photographers on hand for every step of the legal proceedings. He was held on a $1,000 bail, and he was put in the county jail where he prayed to die so that he could be with Elena forever. But during his time in jail, sympathizers to Carl Tanzler's situation brought him food. They offered him consolation. Key West's most experienced lawyer offered to take up Tanzler's case free of charge. Carl was pretty open with the authorities about his situation. He explained to them and to the press that he could not bear to think of Elena's body rotting away in the grave and that he really believed that he could restore her and bring her back to life. His hearing was on October 8th, 1940. In the time between the arrest and the hearing, Elena's body was on public display at the funeral home that it had been moved to. Thousands of people went to look at her, and the overall public opinion was favorable to Tanzler. This never stops weirding me out, but we'll get to that some more at the end. Florinda's testimony in the hearing conveyed her horror at what she had discovered when Tanzler showed her Elena's body. The judge also asked Tanzler if he had had a sexual relationship with the corpse, to which the Count replied that he had not. Carl went on to say that he was a scientist and that he was working on bringing Elena's body back to life to rejoin her spirit, which continued. But the judge was quick to point out that in seven years, he had made no progress in that regard. Then Tanzler, in a really brazen move, asked to have Elena's body back. and He was, of course, denied. A court-appointed physician determined that Tanzler was mentally in, quote, a borderline state, characterized by certain obsessions with other actions normal. Assessments of his mental state by additional specialists contradicted one another, but the final assessment was that he was sane. I don't want to excuse anything he's doing here, 
but it seems clear to me that he had a problem. Yes, I'm of the exact same mind. The determination was that Elena was to be reburied in a place that Carl Tanzler would not know about. He later wrote of this decision, quote, I was thunderstruck. This was not fair. This was monstrous. She To be buried again after all my work? To the judge who gave him this news, he said, quote, It is the end of everything for me. I protest against this inhumane decision. Things became even more complicated when the deputy sheriff received a letter from a woman named Doris Tanzler, who said she was Carl's wife and that they had been separated for 11 years. She offered any and all help that she could in the form of information about Carl's mental health. Carl Tanzler did not deny that Doris was his wife, though he said that they had separated 16 years earlier after she tried to shoot him. Uh, He also had a daughter with Doris, and per her account, he had abandoned the family. There's also another daughter that's in the mix that seems to have passed away at some point. On October 11th, it was announced that Carl's case would go to trial in November. His bail was posted by two friends from his hospital days, Benjamin Fernandez and Joseph Zorsky, who recalled his care of Elena when she was in the hospital. They believed that his intent was pure. On October 22nd, it was announced in the Miami Herald that Carl Tanzler von Kosel would not be tried, as the statute of limitations had run out on any crime that he could be charged with. Tanzler began giving tours of his lab for a quarter a person. He also wrote his account of his time in Australian prison for the Rosicrucian Digest and eventually fantastic adventures to make money. He moved to Zephyr Hills, Florida to get away from the notoriety that he had in Key West. And this is where his remaining sister lived as well as his estranged wife and daughter. The same night that Carl Tanzler left Key West, Elena's tomb was blown up with dynamite. And while the sheriff said that Tinsler didn't set the blast, rumors, of course, swirled that he had. He had trouble settling in at his sister's home, and his wife Doris eventually stepped in to help him out with the transition. Eventually, in 1944, Carl moved out of his sister's to a place of his own where he built a shrine to Elena and lived with an effigy of her that he made from the casts he had taken of her body early on. Tuberculosis claimed the lives of Elena's family one by one. They were all deceased by the mid-1940s, which is why we do not have an account of this whole thing from their perspective. In 1950, Carl Tanzler became a U.S. citizen, and he died in his home two years later at the age of 76, alone except for his Elena effigy. Perhaps the most troubling aspect of Carl Tanzler's story is the fact that it is often framed as being incredibly romantic, couched in phrases like, he couldn't bear to be without her. But it's important to remember that based on everything we know, Maria did not have romantic feelings for Carl. She turned down his proposals, politely citing their age difference as the reason. But it seemed as though she truly had no such feelings for him. Even if she had had such feelings for him, she didn't consent for him to do this with her body. Right. Uh, He makes that statement that she asked him to somehow take care of her body after death, but that is strictly his assertion. We have Nothing to back that up. So in exhuming her body and making it part of this odd marriage, he was acting entirely counter to her own wishes. And at the same time, according to Tanzler's account, it was Maria's dying wish, he said, that she and I should live together. But whether or not that's false, he really did seem to believe it. 
Tanzler biographer Ben Harrison noted in his book Undying Love that it was entirely possible that Carl's time in the internment camp had left him with some serious problems that could explain some of his bizarre and difficult-to-parse behaviors. He wrote, quote, Indeed, if these traumatic memories are at all accurate, one may theorize that this interval of imprisonment may have been the triggering mechanism for post-traumatic stress syndrome, causing von Kosel's later agitated mental states and altering his sense of reality, but also his theories of life, death, and spirit. He definitely seems to have had delusions. For sure. To this day, the exact location of Elena's final resting place is not known. It was chosen by the uh, Key West chief, chief of police at the time, who was Bienvenido Perez, as well as Benjamin Sawyer of the Lopez Funeral Home, and Otto Bethel, who was the cemetery sexton. Yep, and none of them ever divulged where that location was. Uh, in 2016, there was an attempt made to raise funds for a feature-length film telling Tanzler's story. And that project, which was to include puppetry to recreate the events of the macabre tale, uh, was from a fairly sympathetic point of view, but it failed to get its funding through Kickstarter. Uh, I continue to be befuddled by people who romanticize this story, I will confess. Me too. I I don't understand it. <laughs> I I just don't understand. I don't understand how you land there. Well, um, and even if we just erase the entire everything that happened after her death, just the part where he was badgering her while she was hospitalized, like that is already not romantic. Yeah, I mean her entire family moved to get away from him, which to me is a pretty keen indicator that they didn't want anything to do with him. And even if they made that decision because they were scared by science, as he alleges, which I think seems not to be the case if they were going to a hospital for treatment, even if that were the case, they have still sent the clear message that, like, you're not welcome in our lives. So it becomes very weird to me that people are then like, but he still persisted. He just, he loved her so much. And it's like, no. I mean, he may this have, is- but that doesn't make it okay. This is like the very, very far extreme of the romantic comedy behavior that is really stalking. Yeah. Anyway, do you have listener mail that's less I do, and it's short because this episode is a little long, and it's actually a thank you. Um, It is a cute little note, but it came with gifts that we have already received. It says, Holly and Tracy, you ladies always do such a great job. At first, I may not have ever heard of the topic of each podcast, but by the end, I have learned so much, whether it is happy or sad. These Starbucks reusable cups are to be filled with whatever keeps you ladies going. I made the cozies myself. The purple one is for Holly. The candy corn is for Tracy. Um, Thank you, ladies, for listening. Colleen. Colleen actually brought those to us at our live show at New York Comic Con Presents. Yeah. Um, And they are awesome, and I have been using mine a lot. Um, and it's so sweet. Colleen also made us cute little, um, pumpkins last year and brought yeah. them to our show. So we have been very spoiled by Colleen and her, her skills. So thank, thank you, thank you, you Colleen. thank you, Colleen. I love it. Uh, I drink a lot of coffee, so it's always good to have more travel cups because I'm not always good at washing them in a timely manner. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you would like to write to us, you may do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also reach us across the spectrum of social media, including Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, 
Pinterest and Tumblr as Mist in History. We are also at mistinhistory.com where you can check out every episode of the show that has ever existed, going all the way back to the beginning, long before Tracy and I were involved. There are also show notes for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together. So come and visit us at mistinhistory.com, and we will travel the past, creepy and otherwise, together. (laughs) For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 